Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, where we talk entertainment, music, books, foodies, and more each week with special guest interviews of interest to the LGBTQ community and our straight allies. Direct from the entertainment capital of Northeast Ohio. Northeast Ohio. Your host, Scott Fullerton, chats with some of your favorite entertainers, celebrities, newsmakers, and behind-the-scenes people across the country and around the world who make it all happen. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, and let's start talking. Welcome back to Left of Straight Show. I am your host, as always, Scott Fullerton. I am so happy to bring you another interview of interest to our LGBTQ listeners and, of course, our wonderful straight allies. My next guest messaged me about becoming a guest on the show, and I'm so happy he did. He's a self-described social media marketing maven, celebrity content liaison, founder of Anchors to Dust Publishing, and an Amazon best-selling author himself with two titles in the queer horror genre under his belt. He also talks about how writing has helped him come through internalized homophobia and how discussing it helps in talking about many aspects of adulting as us gay people try to include meeting new friends and what being a powerful ally and what change means. So that's kind of exciting here. We're going to get into it now, and I want you to make a big welcome to the show, Mr. Joseph Federico. Joseph, how's it going, buddy? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. This is really exciting. I appreciate well, it. Well, <laughs> I'm excited to have you on. Thank you for your patience. We have had mojo technical difficulties getting this done so we're going to see if this works okay for us so glad you got a hold of me on social media i love myself little social media and uh very interesting story you have my friend so thanks for taking the time to share your story with my listeners of course again it's an honor being here so i'm i'm an open book scott <laughs> there you go all right well let's start from the beginning since it is your first time here on the show let's go ahead and give my listeners a little bit of background Talk about where you grew up, what kind of a kid were you, and uh, what kind of brought you into writing? Is it something you always wanted to do, or let's let's go there first? Sure. So I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I lived there over 25 years. It was a bougie town. I was very blessed to have been, you know, raised the way I was, but it was the late 80s, early 90s, you know, up to two the early 2000s, you know, before I moved and I grew up as a teenager, um, they were a very Republican um, centric town and they were not very accepting of the LGBT or even people of color. Um, again, storybook town, but, you know, it, it certainly hindered me growing up and I was ashamed of who I was and I had to hide behind a beard and going on dates with women, you know, with girls in high school and middle school and um, but I would, you know, I would, I, I would fawn after the, the football players and the boys, <laughs> you know, in my class. So it was, it was a great upbringing, but I, but I definitely, uh, turned to writing eventually to, to work through, uh, the trauma that I felt that I, you know, experienced, you know, growing up in a town like that in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and 
when it comes to horror, I essentially have always been a horror fan. Um, nice. My first newspaper article, if you will, um, was around Christmas time. And there was, I'm going to date myself, um, <laughs> um, 1988, 1989, this special came out on some news channel, uh, maybe like a Barbara Walters or such. Um, and it was about Swamp Thing, which is, you know, um, a horror character that was big in the 80s and 90s uh, and meaning Santa Claus or something. And right. I was so inspired I wrote my first news article uh, covering um, how they met. <laughs> um, and I published it on some newspaper, some um, Crayola paper I had in my, my art bin, some some magic markers. Uh, but I've always been a fan of Stephen King. I've always been a fan of R.L. Stein. Really big inspirations to me as I was you know growing up uh, back then. Um, and, and writing to this day has really helped me, is still helping me work through um my issues <laughs> nice yeah to, to, to put it lightly scott yeah so that's pretty self-aware actually a lot of people you talk hear people talk about journaling and things like that but uh a lot of people don't understand how it really can help you get your feelings good it's a form of personal therapy to yourself before you know what therapy even is right absolutely and i had no idea again we were a family that didn't really talk about your feelings you know our feelings and my town was just, you had to act a certain way. You had to put a mask on pretty much every time you went out. Um, so I, I, I internalized that as well. And I looked to, to horror because it was essentially fantasy, but also to my writing and, um, and also horror movies to, for inspiration. So. Gotcha. Now I, I told you horror's not my genre. I can appreciate <laughs> it, but I don't like to jump in front of people. When I was younger, I end up, I kind of like thinking of internalized homophobia. When I saw, and I won't date me, but I saw My Bloody Valentine back in the day, because I am old. But um, when I saw that, I grabbed onto my best friend's hand, this guy. <laughs> and so I'd like, and it freaked me out because I wasn't out or anything. It was high school, whatever it was. And it's like, so it was like almost internalized homophobia. I didn't want to jump and be scared or look to another guy if I was weird or kind of unmasculine for being scared at a horror show. Absolutely. So. And if you're talking about the original film, one of the best horror movies are for Valentine's Day, hands down. Mm. <laughs> I saw, I think I saw that. And I think I saw Halloween before I said, that's enough. Don't need to see any more of those unless I that's absolutely <laughs> had to. So now um, you talked about uh, the one, was that Adrian Barbeau that was in Swamp Thing? I honestly forget. I, I forget yes, too. But this was like, Late eighties, early nineties, Scott. So that's masking right there too. Adrian Barbeau has uh, has Baba Boom back in the day. So definitely, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about being gay. Then, when did you first come out to yourself? Who was maybe the first person you told? And when do you think you finally found your tribe? You know what? Wow. And I'm gonna get probably emotional. I don't mean to be, but but you know. Um, becoming your true truest most authentic self is a journey and i think especially as i mean in the lgbtqia plus community and i say that because i have um sibling you know uh not siblings but uh, nibblings that are part of the spectrum i myself am a queer man um so i i'm trying to be more respectful of the entire community but when right. i came out i knew from an early age that i was attracted to boys in my class or my gym teachers for instance sounds strange 
but it was a different time. Uh, nothing ever happened, but but I knew I was different. And um, I actually came out to my mom first when I started having uh, strange feelings of, you know, being attracted to my gym teacher in like 1994-ish. Um, and I came out to my mom and it was a very hush-hush conversation. Let's not tell your father. Um, and it was kind of laughed at just, oh, it's a joke. It's, it's, it's a phase. So I internalized that and I went back in the closet proverbially, you know, and, um, sorry, I dropped the phone. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that was, that was difficult, but I kind of, you know, kind of shoved it away. Um, dated girls all through middle school and high school, um, and even up to early college. And I came out officially to my friends when I was 19, um, as, as bisexual, I wasn't ready to, um, to cross that bridge fully into saying that I was gay. Right. Um, because it was safer. It was, it, it was a beard. I can, you know, still maybe hook up with, with, you know, boys on campus, for instance, but I would be dating women, you know, and I came out to friends and family when I was 21. Um, and that was my, my 21st birthday when I officially was, uh, tired of hiding who I was and I, I, I couldn't take it pretty much anymore. And I, and I came out, which was an interesting, we all have our own coming out story, you know, not what was me, but every coming out story is different, you know, to everyone. And, in regards to finding my tribe, I never found my tribe uh, with with other gay men um, as friends, you know, in in, in those um, platonic relationships. Uh, I went to clubs with the other gays, you know, the A gays, and we would all go dancing together and have drinks and hang out and go to parties um, for, you know, for years. But I never really found my tribe, honestly, until uh, last summer when... Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm a you know a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to finding you know my tribe when it comes to other gay men, um, but I found my gay best friend on Facebook. We started chatting randomly, and I was his life coach actually for a while. Um, so that helped me um, be truer to myself, you know, as I was also in therapy, you know, for myself, um, trying to be a better human being, a better man, knowing I had things on the horizon. I was excited about new business adventures, new books coming out. I had to work through my own, you know what? Uh, but I was also helping uh, who became my eventual, you know, very close gay best friend. Uh, and then he started dating his boyfriend a few months after we started talking. A few months after that, we had deeper conversations to bring our boyfriends into the friendship and the relationship. Mm -hmm. And the rest they say is history. So, uh, the tribe was found pretty much almost a year ago, which is crazy to even admit or say, but I'm happy it happened. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a journey to get there. When you get there, you celebrate it, no matter how long it takes, right? Exactly. Exactly. But it took so long, you know, but again, there's no, you know, a time is, is, a, is a social construct and there's no rush on finding a relationship or love or even, even close friendships. So. Right. Well, I think I saw you on another interview say that you've been with your partner for quite a few years now. So at least you had that connection with somebody. You didn't have an entire tribe, but you still had that LGBTQ connection with your partner, right? Sure. We're going on 18 years, Scott. So absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That is awesome. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right. Well, let's talk about that uh, a little more in general, besides just ourselves here. Talk about a gay in the life, so to speak. Um, overcoming that internalized homophobia. 
what have you kind of found or coping mechanisms and how do you kind of deal with that personally and how do you share that with other people? Sure. To, to be honest, I'm very open. I'm an open book, as I said. Um, I hid who I was for most of my young adult life because I felt that I, that I had to. Um, now, yeah, my, my old town, uh, which was in Ridgewood, New Jersey, um, is a lot different than when I left it. Of course, times change, but they have, you know, pride events now and the school is more inclusive, the high school, and middle schools, um, which I'm very happy about. Uh, I mean, I wish it happened when I was there. Um, but I really turned to my writing. I really turned to a lot of my girlfriends, my, my girl, you know, friends, not sure. in a romantic sense, as I think most of us gay men do, we gravitate towards females that we feel safe around and we can right. share the girlfriend experience with, you know, um, because we're safe too around, they feel safe around us, I believe. Um, so I would definitely say the writing and honestly going to therapy for over two years has definitely helped me become uh, truer to myself more authentic, um, feeling the masculine when I feel masculine, feeling the feminine when I feel feminine and not being ashamed of that. If I want to wear something or act a certain way, go out, you know what I mean? Um, but also being a life coach for, for a few months definitely helped me also kind of put the mirror up to myself and ask who I really was and why was I doing this to assist other gay men, you know, prior to meeting my, my friend, um, I had a client. I also, you know, run a social media agency. Um, and it kind of evolved with this other gentleman that was struggling with his weight and his self-esteem. And we evolved from working on his social media strategy and his PR to helping him become a life coach. He left this abusive relationship. He lost weight. He was working out. His business was um, more successful because he was truer to himself. So that's where the life coaching kind of came into play. Um, was an evolution of starting my own agency with social media, but other gay men that needed my help and needed somebody to turn to, which I That's felt great. very strongly about because I never had, you know, had had that, um, which then evolved into meeting my, my, you know, my, my new friend that also needed assistance. And it was, you know, we weren't sure where the relationship was going. Was it a, a client patient or were we going to become friends? So I get, you know, back from um, Myrtle Beach, which is like a second home to me. My family has a place with my boyfriend for two weeks. And um, he and I had a conversation where we, where we needed to hammer out essentially where our friendship was going. And we agreed that we needed another girlfriend, another gay friend in, our, in, in, in each other's lives. Um, and it evolved from there, which that relationship and the, the, the four of us, including our boyfriends, the men in our lives, you know, really has exceeded expectations <laughs> for That's the last, cool. you know, since last October when we all met. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Well, let's talk about for a minute. We're going to go into the books in just a little bit, but I want to sure. talk about this. I mean, um, you're a founding CEO. It's a boutique marketing firm. It's called Anchors Desk Publishing. You cover social media, content creation uh, for Facebook, Twitter, public relations management systems. Uh, you also work with lesser known and first time authors, which I think is awesome. So let's talk social media for a second, because I personally suck at it. Um, and it is the golden age of social media, as we know, with influence and everything happening. Sure is. Um, yep. Do you ever see a bubble coming or do you see this thing just kind of riding on and on and on? Or where do you see the status of social media right now? And is there a drop off point ever? 
You know what? Um, first of all, how, how much time do you have? I can speak social media for, <laughs> uh, for for not even hours, but days and weeks, because that's my you know that's my wheelhouse. That's my bread and butter. Right. Um, I have to learn the trends before I even sell the services. And I'm more of a coach. I've evolved into you know being more of a coach in regards to PR and social media um, for reels, namely on Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You know, business pages, uh, celebrities, and small business owners. Um, so uh, there is no bubble. There has been an evolution since COVID hit. Um, there was the rise and fall of the influencer essentially during you know pre-COVID. Everybody also thought that they were the influencer. Look <laughs> at me, I'm posting my Starbucks or my sandwich or I'm on a trip. That shifted because everybody had to, to tie it back to my own story, look to themselves during COVID and really apply uh, lessons, whether they were difficult or easy for, for everyone that was, you know, that were under lockdowns. Um, they took on hobbies, they took on more of a responsibility to themselves and turn to social media as the mirror to really, I believe, find themselves. So we went from the influencer marketing to a more authentic voice kind of during and post COVID where we wanna be coddled. The consumer, the, the, the viewer, the person that's viewing your content is looking to feel comfortable, not only through nostalgia marketing where we go back to a certain place in time in our minds, we felt safe and comfortable and fun and loved and accepted. But we need as as content creators, namely, to show our true authentic selves. And that's the current trend. We don't want the yachts or the boats or, you know, the fancy vacations. We want right. a human experience on the other end. Talking to you or talking to me or talking to each other in order to grow your business essentially going forward. So that's oh, that's, that's the trend is the true authentic self on social media across all the platforms. And that trend's oh. not going away anytime soon. Nice. I love that. And I think that's very true. I think we're all looking for authenticity. We've been, it's been a buzzword for a while and I'm glad to see this playing out so much in social media. Sure. Um, that's um, I think one tip is to be authentic self. What do you think are maybe three of the biggest mistakes people are making right now? And if they wanted to kind of get better, where do you think they should research how to get better? You know what? I would start on Instagram. I wouldn't go to TikTok. That's not for everybody. I wouldn't go to Facebook. Um, if you want to advertise, that's kind of dying out with Meta, and Meta is not the best platform right now. I would, I would, you know, certainly start with Instagram. It's it, it's a plug and play platform, but don't post. You know, one of the biggest mistakes I see with clients or future clients or people looking that feel lost. A celebrity, for instance, maybe promoting a show. Um, or a real estate agent, or even the insurance agents out there, don't post static images. They're gonna land flat on their face. Unfortunately, it's fun, it's easy. You take your phone out. We all have a camera in our pockets 24 seven. Don't do that. <laughs> Get yourself on camera. I will say when I started, you know, actually right before COVID hit, February, 2020, there was this thing called IGTV. And it was your own television yeah. program through the Instagram platform. And, my engagement rate for myself, I always try to look to myself first, try the new trend before I, again, sell my services or coach a client that feels completely lost uh, right. in the woods of social media. My engagement rate on social were only static images, 8% per week. That's pretty low. 
And I wasn't really tracking metrics until we really knew we had to track metrics in order to <laughs> confirm our content was working, right? The, the ROI. I got myself on camera. I started talking about marketing, my, my history, my journey as the marketing maven. My engagement rate grew 300% in six days just by getting on camera. So there's a method wow. to my madness and numbers never lie. Um, so I, so don't post static images, number one. Number two, be as authentic as possible. And number three, post with intent. Always tie it back to your brand or your products or your services. Mm, very good advice. Thank you for that. Of course. I also want to talk about for a second something that's kind of interesting to me on social media. It's kind of um, cashing in on your looks, so to speak. We have a lot of young, good-looking people out there doing things like OnlyFans and private, just doing these uh, lives <laughs> to try to get people to click through doing lives and things like that. What do you think is the long-term effect on that? Um, it just seems like these guys are making bank now. I mean, I see people making thousands and thousands of dollars a month, mm -hmm. but it, do you see a long-term consequence for it or is it just going to have to play out before we see more um, what's going to happen? That's a great question. I've actually never been asked that question, Scott. So there will definitely be a long-term consequence to that, especially within the community, a lot more wedges um, wedge between um, the sub-communities, you know, not only with gay men, whether people think uh, they're too attractive or they're not attractive enough to start an OnlyFans. And hey, I am, however you make money that's legal and you are good at it and you feel comfortable, I'm a big proponent of you do you, you know, just be as authentic as possible right. and just be safe. You know, that's the dad in me as I'm getting older is just do it safely and legally, please. Um, but I think there will be wider wedges driven between the, the, the community, especially, um, I, as I said, with gay men, but also maybe the trans community or, you know, people of color that are also right. in the community. Um, but it's working for now. And I, I, I predict it will eventually burst and we need more authenticity within our community itself when it comes to going online to to sell yourself as as a personal brand yeah right and i mean and as far as authenticity goes are you uh, you have a lot of these guys are they do we have people technically queer baiting or do we have them just knowing their market knowing their audience how would you kind of it's define both. that it's both i mean i think somebody that may be bisexual which again zero judgment i'm also becoming less naive working on my <laughs> internalized homophobia and you right. know educating myself on the the rainbow essentially right scott but um there's a lot of queer baiting out there you know that but if that works and the, no one's doing anything illegal then maybe be more mindful about your content you know what i mean mm -hmm. um but uh also there was this just really quickly i know if we're running out of time but um there was a a, a content creator that was queer that i've had followed for a while last summer uh, through the fall. Um, not going to name names, but I do want to call this out to the community in the sense where we have to take responsibility onto ourselves as older gay gentlemen, you know, for the, <laughs> the younger generations are coming out or even for, for the community as we're learning about ourselves and we're putting the mirror to ourselves, becoming less naive and spreading the love and, and the light of the rainbow within our community to feel safer around each other. Um, so this influencer was creating really good content body positivity, um, even safe 
acts, you know, just being safe in the, you know, in the boudoir, if you will. Um, but he came out with a video with another influencer that had gotten canceled about a year prior. And he didn't call attention to that. And that bothered me a little bit. And not to be a Karen or a super dad or a grandpa, <laughs> but I did try to respectfully reach out to this person and just call to attention to maybe, you know, not canceling his content or the one he, that he worked with, but just to be mindful about who he works with in the future because people are watching. A lot of the, the younger gay gentlemen um, are looking to influencers for help. They're not coming out to their friends or even their parents or their families. They're looking to social media as a tool to feel comfortable and feel accepted. So right. that's my well soapbox. <laughs> no, well said. Like I said, it just it fascinates me because uh, I just, I'm just interested to see what's going on because these guys are making money hand over fist. You're hoping they're making good choices with it. You sure, don't know boy. what kind of, I mean, you don't, you're hoping they're not getting manipulated by all these agencies that are popping up that are having to rep them. And it's I just know. a whole in, it's, it's an industry now, so it's going to be interesting to see um, how that rides out. So I appreciate you talking about that because sure, I know it's something that's not really talked about, but it's something that kind of fascinates me a little bit. And we should let's, talk about it more, too, you know, in my opinion, Scott, as a super. whole. You know. All right, well, let's get into the books. I mean, I'm excited about this. We're going to get into your writing. You have two books under your belt. You have another one kind of in the hopper, so to speak. They take place in New Orleans. I see some travel pics on your social media from there. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Were we in love with New Orleans? Did New Orleans, uh, making that the scene of your book, make you fall in love with New Orleans? Talk about this love for New Orleans you have. Yeah, so uh, back in high school, a closeted, you know, maven. <laughs> I had always dreamed of going to New Orleans. I was, you know, 15, 16 years old, dreaming of, for whatever reason, and I can't remember exactly when this, you know, seed was planted in my mind, <laughs> maybe a movie or a show or, you know, an author, probably reading Anne Rice. You know, she definitely wrote right. um, her first few novels in New Orleans, which I have been to her house many times um, on the... On, on tours, or, you know, on self-guided <laughs> self tours. Um, We're on the Lanai having cocktails one day, but I'll go right, to another one time. One day, that's the dream, <laughs> to have a house in New Orleans to just do my writing on the Lanai with a French 75, you know. There you go. Um, I love it. And a cigar and maybe some bourbon and some friends around me, you know, to party a little bit and celebrate. Right. But I had always dreamed of going to New Orleans Mardi Gras for whatever reason. I was a very young, you know, teenager. And then I finally had the chance to go with my with my best girlfriend, Melinda. She's my manager, my muse, my best friend, my travel nice. partner. And I always go with her to New Orleans. Um, I've been four times. As of late, I went for my 40th birthday with the best party crew. Um, <laughs> I had the best time. It exceeded all my dreams. You know, they all came true for my birthday. And everyone enjoyed themselves, which I'm so blessed and thankful for. Um, but my first time was not. It was 2014. And I had... $400 in my, my bank account. I had just left a job and I, and I survived. I got through, you know, I had the most fabulous wow. time. I came home with uh, $200 in my bank account. No job lined up, just was working through, you know, um, working through getting another job and freelancing and starting my social media journey. Um, but I fell in love. I was at this uh, gay club called Oz off Bourbon street. Okay. And I was of course, uh, indulging, you know, as, as you do in New Orleans, especially on Bourbon Street. But I had this, I had this in, internal vision while the, and an external mental vision with the lights flashing and all the go-go boys were dancing and, and, and the wrought iron 
um, balconies within this beautiful club. And I felt at home. That was, it was calling me home. And it was, wow. um, this is very stereotypical, but I'm okay with that. Uh, it was during Break Free by Ariana Grande that I had this vision of what the book should really be. Um, wow. My first book. And I came home and I got to writing and I, and I finished it uh, about within two years after getting back from uh, New Orleans for the first time. And That's I have crazy. been back since I have been inspired many times over by, by the city of New Orleans. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, <laughs> were you always drawn to the horror genre? Do you knew that was going to write about, or did New Orleans just have such that presence and that supernatural witchy, witchy feel to it that that kind of gravitated your writing towards there? What was, what was both, the draw to horror? Both, you know, again, um, horror for me is a form of escapism. Um, you know, from, I was telling you earlier, from a very early age, you know, late eighties, uh, early nineties, but new Orleans itself has a very, um, different feeling, a very, you know, uh, heavy feeling that is not spooky necessarily, but there's history there. You know, you can go on a, a ghost tour or a history tour and learn about the folklore that is very prevalent, um, you know, uh, prominent and prevalent within the city itself and that that sticks with with most people you know and that's that's what i really brought home the first time that led me to go back several other times to not only enjoy my time with my friend and to promote my projects but to be inspired for the next novel going forward that's great i love that now we have three books uh potential third book and the, the first one voodoo juice back in 2017 here it is <laughs> i love it right, yeah. hold it up hold it up again okay. for me there you go i, I like that for you some props here's the i like it very you. cool <laughs> so we have the very first one um 2017 you said it took you a while to write each of these books okay. talk about your writing process um what did you find came naturally to you and what did you really have to work on? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, uh, it took five years for the first one start to finish. Um, I told you, well, actually prior to going to New Orleans for the first time, I was with my, my partner um, on the shores of Myrtle Beach and we had gone on ghost tours and he's also into horror, you know, like I am. So I was inspired by the folklore of South Carolina, um, the history of 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 the south that i am so drawn to every single day especially when i go visit um new orleans and also south carolina myself um but it started on the shores of of this resort called ocean creek where i actually have um you know my parents have a a condo i was nice. drinking a bucket from the beach bar called voodoo juice and that's <laughs> what inspired the original story where it was going to be set in the nineties. And it was kind of like a murder mystery kind of novel. Then I went to new Orleans a year later. Uh, and that's when everything hit, you know, at Oz at the nightclub where I had to come home and I was re-inspired. Um, but the process came pretty easily to me. I um, definitely work through in my, in my prose and my writing things that I can't uh, act out necessarily in real life. So it's a form of escapism. It's a form of, uh, writing, um, which is very cathartic to me to work through my own issues, as I said, is my internalized homophobia, but it's also a form of fantasy. So I enveloped myself in these characters that spoke to me. This, you know, uh, Riley Clark and his partner, um, you know, Cody Shrine, the third, which is the main character in my second book in the series. 
Um, what I had to work on was refinement and trying to emulate, um, at least at first, because now I'm really finding my, my, my own voice with my third book, um, mm -hmm. which is a very, which is going to be a very um, personal experience, you know, but also leaning towards the horror genre with vampires. Um, but I had to work on my prose and make sure that the tenses made sense and the grammar was correct. Even though I had been writing for years prior to starting my book, I had to make sure that it was marketable and that it included everybody, not just the, uh, the, the, the gay community, Scott. Right. And that's what they say. I mean, they say most of writing is editing. I'm I'm not, uh, but that it's all about the edit. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely understand that. Sure. And now I kind of looked at the third, you talked about the second book for Sam. The first one, I like the time jump in it. You ha you're talking about someone from the past that learns the ways of voodoo. And then you have someone from more of the future that kind of learns about this person in the past. So I right. love that kind of alliteration there. Um, <laughs> what, what brought that? Uh, how did that come about? You know, um, a lot of science fiction. I worked for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for about two years. So that was inspired, you know, by that as well. A lot of horror movies, a lot of Skeleton Key with Kate Hudson, my favorite uh, Southern inspired Gothic movie, you know, horror movie about voodoo and just uh, body snatching was also very <laughs> intriguing to me, you know, as an author, I said, Oh my gosh, because right. don't we all, especially I think as gay men want to maybe be somebody else as we're coming out and figuring out who we are. So that was very, um, exciting to me to write about that if you can experience it of course magic in real life then go to your prose go to your writing and live in the world of your characters uh which was very intriguing for me um but i also have a love of the, the 18th century uh especially in new orleans and that's where the time jump kind of kind of started but but also all the tours i went on uh and all my friends in new orleans that actually came to my 40th birthday at the kai's house which was actually in my books. So I've, I've really come full circle in my, in my journeys of, of being an author. <laughs> nice. And I've talked about a lot of times with a lot of guests. I mean, technically we are characters ourselves until we come out. We're actually putting on an entire other persona before we come out. Right. Exactly. Um, so, so that kind of works both ways there. <laughs> And the second book, Still Voodoo Juice, this is, like you said, Origins, Cody's story. There we go. <laughs> Cody's story. I love that. So as you said, you brought this character from the first book into the second book. Did uh, that kind of come to you while writing the first book? It's like, wow, this guy has a lot more going on we have to explore. Or did someone say, I want to know more about that character? How did the second book come about? Both, both, Scott. I, uh, sort of a spoiler, so Cody survives however he survives at the first book, you know, at, at the end of the first book. And he wasn't done speaking with me. You know, authors uh, love their characters, whether they torture them or they torture us, you know, for the, for the writer, you know, uh, themselves. But he wasn't, his story wasn't finished. And I was going into the Roaring Twenties, you know, in, in 2020, and I needed to envelop myself in the history, learn more about the time and the rise and fall of, the literature renaissance in the French Quarter in, in, in the 20s, which, by the way, only lasted for six months, um, you know, historically speaking. So that was intriguing to me. And the rise and fall of the flapper and also prohibition when, when everything was illegal, but also so was being a homosexual, you know, back in the 1920s, uh, where everybody had to go to speakeasies and, you know, go behind closed doors. I had to write about that, not only for myself to work through my own, business, but also for the community 
through the eyes of this character. And he also time travels. Um, and he meets and he falls in love with this gorgeous voodoo practitioner, this this voodoo god in 1926. And that's where everything kind of re-unravels for, for these characters. So. Nice. I <laughs> love that. And then um, I kind of saw a teaser of the third book. I don't know whether it's still true or not, but it was uh, Voodoo Juice, the final sip. Was it planned? as a trilogy the entire time or did you just is this something you want to wrap up to move on to something else or why are we calling it the final sip possibly i was destroyed after finishing the first book and i knew <laughs> that these characters i was because like they're they're my babies they're my family you know they're my family and i wrote and breathed life and they breathe life into me in dealing with you know not only writing but also my past you know and my traumas so I wasn't quite done with them, even though I had tortured the heck out of them in every possible situation magically and, you know, in their own worlds, um, both in the past and in the present and the future, I wasn't done. So I had planned on writing two books at first, and then I just had so much story to tell. They had so much more to tell me and, and, and teach me that I decided to make it a trilogy, which there may be a prequel in the future. There may be another one, but right now it's only going to be three and I'm not quite sure how I feel about that yet as an author. So <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Truth yeah. in advertising. There you yeah, go. Pretty much. <laughs> That's exciting though. I'm so excited to kind of uh to, to follow the path as this goes on here. Um what do you like I said, we're gonna finish up this third series. Do you find yourself still drawn to the New Orleans area? Do you see you wanna go maybe outside the city or where do, what's uh on your storyboard and for the future. As of right now, we're going with New Orleans full throttle. It is such an exciting, special city to me, especially after I came back for a week, uh, you know, for my for my 40th birthday, because I had always gone with my friend, my muse, my manager, Melinda is is my number one travel partner, you know, to the city. It's our city, you know. Right. We had so many experiences, both um, haunted and full of love and gratitude, and just sharing these experiences as, as best friends. Um, but New Orleans slays me, Scott, and I probably <laughs> will never not write about New Orleans. And I, and I feel like I'm doing it a disservice, at least for me and, and for my soul, if I don't write about the city, because there's so much, there's so much history that you can blend in these, you know, supernatural stories with. I love that. Yeah. I am in well, love with New Orleans, and I always will be. <laughs> <laughs> as as it should be. I think that's fantastic. Well, I'm excited we got to, to meet you, Joe. I think you have a great story. You tell great stories. Um, and we got to keep you coming back on the show because there's a lot we can learn as social media evolves about your writing and so many other things. Thank you for taking the time to be on the Left of Straight Show. Thank you so much for having me, and I would love to come back. Really, Let you. my listeners know where they can find your books and where they can find you on social media and maybe even your business if you want. Sure. So the hard copies right now, I'm working on a new website, but you can order them directly um, by calling and placing an order with the Maven himself. 973-289-3517 is my business line. It's open 24-7. But you can find uh, the eBooks on smashwords.com is Voodoo Juice. The first one is available for free, you know, download on all e-readers. The second one is on Smashwords and also on barnesandnoble.com for $3.99. Oh, that's fantastic. Super duper. And where they can find you on social media if they want to get in touch with you 
to ask sure. for a private tour of <laughs> New Orleans yeah, or right. I would love they need that. some I would tips. Love to quit my job and, just, <laughs> and write itineraries. Uh, but you can follow me on Instagram at Joseph A. Federico and the hashtags Joseph A. Federico and the Marketing Maven. And that's my main platform. But also, if you're looking for any kind of services, I'm not a hard sell, but anchors to duskpublishing.com is my business website for social media. Amazing. Joe Federico, it's been my pleasure. Hold those two books back up again as we get ready to go here. Um, (laughs) Such a pleasure speaking to you. Stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to do a special five questions with Joe. Uh, Look for that next week. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Thanks for listening to the Left of Straight show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast distributor and please give us a five-star rating so more listeners can find us. You can follow us on social media and be sure to check out our website, www.leftofstraightradio.com for contests and other news and information. See you next week.